as a photographer that you have to capture what's, you can only capture what your camera can see, not what you see and what you feel. So you um, have to find a place, these places where something um, in the visual world uh, that you can see and record is expressing something that you feel that's normally hidden. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Glosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why, in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. This is We Are Photographers, and these are our stories. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Creative Live. I am your host, Kenna Klosterman, and we are here for another episode of our podcast, We Are Photographers. And today's guest is Keely Yuyan, and Keely is a documentary photographer, contributor to National Geographic magazine and other publications. Uh, he is His work is informed by his ancestry, which is both Nanai and Chinese-American. Um, his work truly explores the relationship of humans to the land and very much through different cultural perspectives and not just his own. Uh, he has been named one of PDN's 30 Under 30. Uh, he is a National Geographic Explorer and a member of Indigenous Photograph as well as Diversify Photo. And in addition to his photography skills, I'm excited to talk to Keeley about his mad primitive survival skills as well as his building traditional kayaks, um, and of course, most of the year, he can be found up north in the circumpolar Arctic. So, Keely Yuan, thank you so much for joining us today. Pacho guapo. Uh, it's nice to see you, Kenna, and thanks so much. That was quite an intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, mm -hmm. you um, have quite uh, a past and quite a future and um, just are doing some really incredible work. Um, I have listened to some of your Nat Geo talks and um, some other uh, podcast episodes of you and First of all, you're just such a joyous person um, to listen to. So that was sort of one of the things that I um, that I took away, and and I think it's um, I know I, I've heard you talk about sort of the the um, that uh, someone's personality and the way that you can kind of dive in and start to interact with the people that you're working with um, is a very valuable thing to have. So we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but again, just an honor to have you on the show. Um, as we were scheduling this, you talked about how it is, it is net. Well, we're now in April, uh, 2021 as we're recording and that it is getting into assignment season for you. Uh, so what does assignment season look like for you? Oh man. Well, assignment season definitely has gotten to be, um, you know, in recent years, it's just nonstop. Assignment season is uh, essentially nine months of the year. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's being aboard ships in the Arctic. Um, it's a, you know, from basically from spring through fall is the sort of prime times to be in the in the north, just because that's when it's not, well, not when it's not deathly cold, but also as a photographer, um, the far north doesn't have any light. There's no light um, for all that for three months of the year. So uh, that's why I'm restricted to <laughs> the other times. As a mm -hmm. photographer, no light. I mean, I know that some of these cameras are getting really good with low light, but uh, <laughs> that, add the cold in there, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, what, who, what are the types of publications that you get assignments for now? And is it something that you already have a story that you're going to um, – that you are pitching to uh, to publications? Is it the continuation of your long term, one of your long term stories, or we'll we'll, we'll talk about? But um, how is that at this point in your career? What does that look like? You know, there's a, a there's a combination of all kinds of different things that happens. Um, a lot of times, I get these um, 
random inquiries from just uh, like, I'm very surprised when it happens. Uh, so Vogue got in touch with me and they, they wanted to do a story on women who run the Iditarod. Uh, and I was like, oh, Vogue, huh? <laughs> that doesn't seem like, that is not my first thought for an amazing fit, but it turned out to be actually a really good fit um, and it worked out really well. So with something like that, usually, you know, the editors have some idea of what that story is before. Um, and to give them credit, they really worked hard to make everything come together. Like it was the least production it ever had to do on any shoot, which was very, um, very nice. But, you know, there's other times, too, where um, editors will just show up um, that I've never worked with before. And they'll say, well, we, we love your work and your outlook, your perspective. We want to do a story that's vaguely in this category, you know, in this subject. What do you have? What ideas do you have? And I think that's becoming more bigger and bigger now in an editorial photography, which is that, and it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because it means that editors recognize that photographers, uh, since we're on the ground and we're poking about and, in everybody's business, that we have a better idea, you know, kind of what's really happening. So we have a better idea of what kinds of things we can pitch. And I think it's especially important when it comes to things in terms of representation for people of color and um, other minorities, you know, because we are, we are, we exist in worlds that um, a lot of times the editors don't, you know, that's not tr true across the board. Um, there are lots of pretty diverse editors and it gets more diverse every single day, but especially for someone like me who, I wouldn't say I'm super specialized, but there's just not many, <laughs> there are not, not many, very many indigenous photographers and not a lot of people that work in the far north also. So yeah, it gets to be, um, so anyone who's interested in any of those things, especially if they intersect, they are knocking on my door. <laughs> um, including Vogue. <laughs> right, including Vogue. Uh -huh. <laughs> Which again, just goes to show you, you never know, you just never know, um, you know, what's going to come your way. And I've, I've, I, you know, I, to that point, I've heard you talk a lot about um, the importance of those relationships with your editors, um, with editors, you know, in different publications and such. And then, you know, they, it, it's, it, you know, can turn from this, like hoping somebody is going to, um, you know, to, to see me, to like, they truly know you and um, have interacted with you. Um, how did you come about sort of developing these relationships? And I do want to talk about, um, obviously, some of that, that work up north as well. But uh, take us back to, to getting started. Yeah, gosh, that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think <laughs> I think I just have like my personality wise, um, I am an extrovert, but I wouldn't say that I'm like very extremely extroverted or anything like that. I'm, I'm kind of like right in between. Um, but I just have a very strong sort of relationship orientation. You know, like when I meet someone, I want to be their friend. You know, I want to hang on. I'm very friendly. And um, anyone who I'm going to spend talking to, if I'm going to talk to you at all, I find you interesting and I, I want to talk to you a lot <laughs> I want to hang out with you and really get involved in your world. And uh, so I, I sort of see all of those anytime I run into someone and, and hang out with them as an opportunity to get to know someone better and find out about what's going on in their world. That's how I learn about um, things. Uh, and so um, when I got started, uh, gosh, I was an assistant for um, a while. In commercial photography, I thought that commercial photography was going to the way forward for me. Um, and I was doing work at REI, at the REI studio. Um, I eventually um, moved up to actually doing shooting for REI. But at some point, um, you know, REI actually um, went in-house um, after I started working there or after I started shooting there. And um, I just, it was like a moment in time where I realized, oh gosh, well, they're doing this thing and I'm no longer going to be shooting at REI because um, I want to be a freelancer. I don't, I don't want to work there. Um, and um, it was a moment where I realized, well, gosh, what, what are we, what do I really want to do as a photographer? And I recognized that I needed to move into documentary. So thus begun my path to really becoming a photographer because it was suddenly way harder, but it also made me um, only work on the stuff that I actually wanted to do. Um, and right around the same time, I, another sort of um, thing happened that was very lucky. I got to be an assistant for um, National Geographic photographer, Robert Clark, who has um, you know, been a longtime geographic photographer. And we hit it off. Of course, we had a great time uh, hanging out. Uh, 
and he was really interested in the boats and he was interested in my photography and he looked at it and you know he said basically like uh gosh i want to show this to my editor um here let me uh and so he you know he opens up his laptop and is sending off an email to his editor and i was like no 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 <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> um, and, you know, because the thought of working for National Geographic had never even occurred to me, right? Like, it, it's, um, I don't know why. I don't know why that is, because I certainly grew up with um, Nat Geo's in the basement. I spent a lot of time now down there um, lurking with the cats and piles and piles of Nat Geo's. So, um, yeah, which I don't is know. It, I don't which know is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> because so many people um, do think like, if they're into photography and into that, you know, style of photography as well, photojournalist, editorial, it's like, I want to be a Nat Geo photographer as like this dream. But is it, do you think it's because even though you were looking at a lot of photography, like you weren't like being a photographer, wasn't your thing yet? Or I don't know. I'm not sure. I think probably because I just don't come from a, um, a culture, any of my cultures that I come from, um, and um, sort of my family's experience in the U.S. is just, they're just so pragmatic. You know, we're not, we're, um, you know, I'm sure if I came from a family full of people in media that I would, I would know about it and I would be thinking about all this stuff. But instead, it was mostly my, my parents thinking like, gosh, you got to be a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant or something, you know, something that's safe and um, will make money and you will survive the next depression that comes or whatever. <laughs> So it, it never occurred to me, but of course, once Robert raised that possibility, then I realized that that was a was a real thing, and that was something that seemed very uh, actually doable. I think it's another weird thing about it too is I think as a as a minority in the U.S., I, I had never really thought that that kind of thing was possible. You know, that it was possible to get to the place where I could be f making photographs for National Geographic, but the actual process of it, um, you know, you were asking about relationships. And um, I just kind of do what I normally do, which is um, just try to be really friendly and think about um, all of the editors at the Geographic as being um, people that I want to hang out with, you know. And um, I didn't know anything about them, but I showed up in D.C., sent an uh, email off to the director of photography. Um, and um, I said, hey, I would love to buy you a coffee. I'm here in D.C., I'm pretty close to where my parents live. And... Uh, I'll just come and hang out and maybe show my stuff, you know, and, and so I went up and I was surprised. They were really, really happy to see me. And um, not only did Sarah Lean bring me in and um, look at the work, but she also brought a bunch of other editors <laughs> and, and everyone came over um, to look at it and watch a little video. And I was so, uh, I, they, I came away being very impressed not by the Nacho HQ, which is very impressive, or you know any of that kind of stuff, but I was impressed by how amazing and interesting the actual editors were as people. You know, they knew so much about the world, um, were so thoughtful, um, and you could just sort of see that even in the way that people moved around in the world, that the way they kind of carried themselves, that they um, that the world was much much larger. Uh, to them that they knew a lot of stuff about the world and uh, kind of navigated their their way um, in a way that was very different than most people that I meet. So I immediately was like, oh my God, these are my people. <laughs> this is, these are good people. So uh, yeah, that was the kind of beginning of that. Well, it's interesting because it is that, I mean, I just, I'm envisioning right now, like sitting in a Nat Geo, you know, room actually I don't even know what that would look like but like you said with all these incredible people who have had such incredible um uh, experiences through photography even if it's not their own uh but just through being able to work with all these amazing people and stories and everything and, and so you know but coming back to like it seems like what the through line there is curiosity is looking into, um, you know, story, what makes the world work, <laughs> um, or not work yeah. or, you know, just how yeah. all of it, all of it. And I think with, with, then we find our, you know, we find the particular stories that, um, I don't know that, that we're most attracted to. Um, so I guess I, I, I would love to, um, yeah, just talk a little bit more about this four year, is it now five year um, work that you've done up in the Arctic with incredible um, stories and, and you and 
most especially you're talking about um, building relationships and kind of almost embedding yourself, becoming one of, you know, be, being there, not just a fly on the wall, um, really experiencing. Yeah. How, how have you been able to, to do that? Well, you know, there's um, it's it's easier, it's certainly easier now to go back to a community that I've become a part of, um, and that's the that's the goal <laughs> to be there to be to to go to a place often enough that um, that not not only am I a part of the community, people look forward to me coming back as much as I look forward to going there, but also you know the cool thing about it is that well maybe cool but it, uh, a cool thing about it is that I'm also accountable. Like if I keep going back to a place, I'm accountable because the people know what I've said and printed and done, um, how I've treated people. And um, that accountability is a really wonderful thing, actually, because it makes you a better journalist and a better human being, you know, um, and it's just one of a weird thing that I think when there's a um, journalism in the past has been so colonial in this sense, like, here, let's go over here and do this work here and never come back again. So um, whatever work we do, we don't have no feedback. I actually have no idea how we did on that story as far as the people who are actually in the story. So that's kind of a funny thing. But yeah, I love um, when I go to a new place, um, there's all kinds of different entries into it. You know, nowadays I tend to do a lot of research and I know enough people that know, um, have a cousin or brother or <laughs> um, something like that in the, the new place that I'm going to. So I try to make some kind of connection um, before I go. But there's lots of places where I go where I don't know anyone at all, you know, and I have to go in cold. Um, and a lot of times I just try to, I think this is a real big cultural difference also in the way that um, we kind of carry ourselves in the world. Um, you, you know, if you're American or Canadian, often, or just, you know, generally kind of Western European in general, there's a, there's a real desire to not... Um, to not infringe on other people, you need know, to not impose on other people. So, you know, you, you walk around and you don't want to bother people who are walking around in the street. You don't want to go up to people and talk to them. You know, you feel embarrassed about that kind of thing. But from the, the cultures that I come from, it's not really true. You know, we, we obviously don't want to impose on other people, but um, like one of the things I do, for example, if I show up in town um, in a place where I don't know a lot of people, I often will just walk around and look for landscape photographs, you know what I mean? Poking around in people's yards and walking around and seeing what's going on, you know, sometimes there'll be like a drying polar bear hide or like a boat or something that's interesting and I'll just poke around and eventually someone will see me and, you know, they'll, they'll walk out and, you know, and that's, that's the moment, right? This is the moment when most people give up. They're like, oh God, <laughs> someone's confronting me. I have to run away now, you know, and apologize. And I don't, I just start talking to them. You know, I start talking to them and, um, you know, what's initially seems, I think, especially scary to a lot of non-native peoples um, is having a in initially slightly hostile uh, um, <laughs> encounter with, a, with a, an indigenous person. Um, I just don't see it that way. Like I start talking to them and start to asking them about what's going on and they could see I'm curious about their world and, and are interested and, and that I might have some knowledge about it, but I'm not just a complete newbie in their world. You know, like I might start talking about that polar bear hide and, and how it was done or, um, you know, I make some small talk about like the sealing season or about the weather or something like that. Something that's relevant, but also lets me know, lets them know that I'm not, um, I'm not a total outsider that I belong in this world, that this is a world that I'm familiar with, you know, and then invariably I get invited indoors um, for dinner. You know, I get invited to have uh, caribou stew or something like that. <laughs> and, and this is juncture number two, where people, a lot of people go wrong too, because this is when people say, Oh no, I couldn't possibly. And they refuse to because they don't want to impose. But this is a really big difference between indigenous communities and a lot of Asian communities um, and uh, other, you know, just general cultures, which is, you know, if you refuse dinner, what you're basically saying is you're rejecting that person, um, uh, rejecting that relationship. Like, I don't actually really want to have a relationship with you. All I want is what you can offer me. Like, I want your story but nothing else. Like, I don't want to get to know you. And that's how people take it. You know, they, they might not say that, but that's certainly, um, that's certainly the subtext of that. And so I, I absolutely, even if I have other things going on, I will try my absolute best to make sure that I can go show up for dinner and hang out. And I often bring gifts. Um, if, if I, 
Um, I often bring like small gifts and things like that um, to hand over. Or if not, I always just remember that I, it's a gift economy. They're inviting me in. I'm in their debt now, you know, for, for having been fed. So I try to get involved and I try to invite them to do stuff go out, have some fun, you know, because they're interested in me too. Here's the world traveler who showed up at their doorstep. Um, and then um, I just try, try to make sure to go back and really explore that relationship and go deeper. Yeah. I think that the, that cultural nuance of, you know, again, understanding what is insulting um, versus, you know, like we you <laughs> come from, you come from people come from a different background. And so the, the time and effort into understanding what that, what all those nuances are, um, sounds, seems to be so important in to get to the level of, of work that you've been able to do there. Um, can you tell us about like, so, so, there's I have these images in my head of um, whales uh, being uh, of, you know, 50 people trying to pull up a whale out of um, you know, after the hunt or um, you on, you know, say you, I've heard you talk about, you know, standing there for hours and being present in the moment and um, for without talking to each other, because that's sort of the zone you have to get in. And I know those are kind of two different things, but can you bring people um, to the Arctic and, and this community and um, what um, some maybe a couple of stories of what it's like to, to be in the, the photographing side of it? while you're experiencing there there oh sure yeah well i mean so we work on a lot of different indigenous communities um and a lot of them in the far north um the Inupiaq uh, are particularly one of my favorites and i think part of it has to do with the fact that just i've just been i just know everyone and have been there for so long um that they're like family to me you know um i already just i just booked my ticket for the spring uh for spring whaling season this year and i'm gonna head over um, and it's always a little bit of a challenge because every time I go up there, there's a huge housing shortage. And um, and uh, the hotel that's there is $350 a night. So I'm obviously not going to stay there <laughs> unless I'm on assignment. And even then, I try not to spend $350 a night. Um, but there's a real housing shortage. So the only way to actually stay in a lot of these places is to hang out with local people and, and be invited into their homes or, you know, to ask for a place to stay. So uh, it's always a little bit of a challenge. That's a logistical hurdle I have to overcome every single time. But it's also uh, really, really pays back. You know, it really pays for itself. So, um, I, you know, I absolutely love being up there and the edge of the sea ice in the springtime during the spring whaling season. Um, for, for, for those of that are listening that don't know anything about the whaling season, so um, Inupiaq are an indigenous um, Alaska native group that um, is a subgroup of the Inuit that span across the entire Arctic. And uh, uh, Inupiaq have been hunting whales for a really long time. And in fact, you know, I think generally Westerners really view whaling in a very uh, negative light. And But I think people don't really know that that the reason we view whaling in such a negative light is because essentially uh, Europeans um, and early Yankees um, basically hunted whales to extinction. And we're, so now we have this like kind of attitude about whaling, which is this complete blowback from having harvested something to complete annihilation. <laughs> but there's another way. You can, in fact, um, hunt whales and have a deep relationship with them and actually care and love for them. And I, know, I actually make the argument that when you do, when you um, look at whales uh, the, from the indigenous perspective by hunting them, by having a relationship with them, that you actually care much more deeply about whales um, because you understand them and you depend on them. You and your family's life depends on the, the, that whale. So um, the Inupiaq have actually tripled the population of whales in the last um, 40 years, which is pretty amazing while hunting them. So I just want to kind of throw that contradiction out there because Westerners will see this as a contradiction. How can you hunt? and raise the population. It's just not a contradiction um, in my world. <laughs> um, so that being said, like being up there um, in the springtime on the Arctic sea ice with with the whaling crew, you know, it's not, um, most of that time really spent is doing 
everything except what people imagine whaling really is, which is throwing a harpoon at a whale. The vast majority of 99.9% of the time, what we're doing is we're hanging out with each other. We are pickaxing blocks of blocks of ice to create um, ice trails. We're standing by the edge of the water, watching for whales, listening um, as the eiders fly by in like a long, giant migration that might extend from one side of the sky to the other. Um, it's smelling the ocean. You know, we're stand, you're standing on the ice and you look around, everything's covered in snow and glacial blocks of ice, but there's also the sea. It's a really incredible thing to be in that particular um, environment. There's really like, it's like no other place on earth. Uh, it's a bit hard to understand. <laughs> um, and then also the community vibe of it too. So, you know, there's that really deep spiritual moment when you're standing watching the whales for hours on end, you know, and your brain kind of shuts off. Then there's the community part, which is when a whale gets caught or when um, uh, someone needs help, everyone shows up and there's laughter and shouting and uh, um, a lot of people hanging out with each other doing various things, um, and including when we're pulling a whale that's been harvested up onto the ice and out of the water. It takes 50 to 100 people to do that. Um, we get these giant pulleys, like pulleys that are bigger than a desk. Um, and then we put a bunch of ropes through them um, and tie it to the whale and uh, haul it up onto the ice. And it's an amazing thing. You know, you take take lots of breaks <laughs> and it, it might take uh, it might take as long as eight hours to pull that whale up onto the shore with 50 people. So it's quite a lot. Uh, but it's an amazing experience uh, for that to happen. Well, and 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 looking at your images um, sort of are, are give us the ability to um, at least have a a, a peek into what what this um, such a different lifestyle from um, what you know many people live. Um, can you go back to the accountability part in terms of I know if you're I've heard you say that you know your your most the most important thing is to the people that you are telling stories about. Um, talk to me about. Um, like coming back to them with the images or what they see as the impact of those images being seen by the rest of the world. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, I, I would say that generally speaking, um, the communities, a lot of the communities that I work in, they're a little bit less interested in the actual, um, in the actual publication. A lot of times it depends, it depends, you know, it depends on the, the community. Um, but a lot of it, what really matters is the process how it's done, you know, and um, they just don't really understand this idea of like flying into a place and spending three or four days there, getting to not really getting to know anyone and then flying away with, with a story because it doesn't make any sense because they're like, how would you understand us in that amount of time? And invariably the stories that come out of that are, are um, deep, deep cultural um, biases that um, have the kind of superficial um padding, <laughs> the superficial padding uh, of what looks like the place, you know, because a photograph is really nice in that way. Documentary photographs don't lie, but they can also tell, um, they could significantly misrepresent what's going on when you don't understand it. Um, you know, if, if every photograph we took was the entire truth and all the truth, then we we wouldn't need editors. <laughs> um, and it, it probably say we wouldn't need photographers, really. Anyone could just go up there and snap a picture and it would be the truth and the entire truth. So where what we choose to accent and what we choose to um, choose to select is really, really important. That, and that accountability aspect of it is um, like when I, I think this is a, an, a tough, tough thing. Um, for Westerners to understand is this idea that that um, indigenous people own their own stories. They own what's going on, um, and they really want a communal. They like have communal sharing over any kind of that knowledge, um, including their own story. And so, when someone comes in, the Western world believes though that if you if you take the picture, that it belongs to you. If you write the story, it belongs to you. And, and the communities don't see it that way at all. It makes no sense to them. So over time, they've started to understand that. You know, they they like understand now. They've seen it happen so many times where they've been totally misrepresented, and they understand now. Oh gosh, well they don't really think this way. They don't get it. So, um, but they really do value it when someone comes in and believes in that communal idea. So I'm not saying that uh, I don't. Um, think that it's that every single person should go in and do this kind of long form reporting. Um, I think that's totally necessary, and not and certainly not every person who reports on indigenous community needs to be indigenous. Like you, you know, if you're um, 
Lakota, you don't have to be, uh, or so if you're working in Lakota territory, you don't have to be a Lakota to report on that. Um, I, but I do think that it's really important that we have Lakota that are reporting on that, right? So right now, the, the main thing is that there's just not enough people who are actually um, reporting on these things and talking about these things that understand them better, more deeply, uh, are invested, are, are accountable, you know? So like, if, you know, for example, if a Lakota person um, goes to uh, Pine Ridge and tells a story there, if Pine Ridge, if the Pine Ridge residents look at that story and they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> this isn't us, that boy, that Lakota uh, journalist is going to be in trouble because their aunties and um, family, you know, they're going to get in hot water for all of that. And, you know, they will probably won't be allowed to report there again. Everyone knows who they are, right? They, knows all, they know their family, et cetera. And that accountability is really deeply entrenched. But the chances of that thing happening in the first place, of that problem happening in the first place are low because you're Lakota. So you're born and raised and you don't have the same cultural um, assumptions that, right. um, you know, a non-Lakota will. Right, right. I mean, coming back to the the issue of, um, you know, not enough Indigenous photographers in out there working, can you talk a little bit about the organizations, um, Indigenous Photograph and Diversify Photo, for people who aren't familiar with them, whether it's, you know, editors out there or, you know, people in the industry or other photographers themselves and um, what those missions are and, and what they're, um, what you're seeing happen? Yeah, for sure. Um, indigenous uh, Photograph and Diversify Photo are actually quite different in, um, in a lot of ways, even though they are ostensibly about um, helping get more representation of photographers, of different kinds of photographers. So Indigenous Photograph is interesting because it's a collection of Indigenous photographers who are working and generally have national bylines. Um, and there's not that many of us, um, especially now that it's been expanded to include Indigenous photographers from around the globe, globally, it's expanded a lot. So we have a lot more members, but just working in North America alone, um, there haven't been that many. Um, so, and, but the cool thing about it is that we're not all, it's not all just a bunch of photojournalists that are working in the same kind of way. The, the members of Distance Photograph are representing Indigenous issues and um, doing work that really thinks about um, Indigenous uh, issues in a, in often very new ways. Like the entire idea, for example, of uh, going into a place and t getting a story and coming back with it and printing it out is a very colonial thing to do. Um, anyway, so there are some, all of these kind of, and, and the mediums of photography, um, uh, well, photography in particular is a very colonial medium, this idea that you, you sort of capture someone's um, uh, likeness um, and then print it somewhere else for someone to see that you don't even know where it might go is really strange and unusual to a lot of uh, indigenous communities. And so um, what's nice about indigenous photographs is that we found, um, we're, although we're all photographers, we found different ways for to use that medium to represent things that we're thinking about. Some of them are constructed narratives. There's like fine art kind of stuff, um, portraiture. Um, we have People who are using tin types, you know, um, you know, wet plates kind of stuff to to sort of shine a light back on the way that photographs and the camera have been used to create indigenous stereotypes over the years. Um, and then we have other people that um, are not interested in the past at all, but very interested in indigenous future. Like, um, what does it look like for us um, urban natives, for example, who are like making indigenous music or talking about indigenous things, you know, like, um, how do we want to be portrayed? What's what's indigenous fashion? You know, uh, what is that going to look like? Um, how are we creating uh, sp spaces that we feel comfortable and you know like basically what is our kind of future leadership going to look like how are we going because um, a lot of indigenous um culture is kind of leading at the forefront of different issues that we all care about um such as conservation and um art and music and so the uh, indigenous photograph has all these different members that are taking different you know, trying different things. Um, so it's a very cool collective uh, in that sense. And then Diversify Photograph is a lot more straightforward in some ways. You know, it's a giant database of, um, giant database of 
basically um, a POC or minority photographers. Um, and it's designed to um, just sort of get rid of editors' excuses, publication exclusive excuses, <laughs> um, when they say, uh, oh, well, we covered this issue, um, you know, we're, we're covering the George Floyd protest, but we can't send any black photographers because we don't know, we don't know any black photographers, you know, our, our deadlines are too busy, are too, too coming too quick. And we don't know anybody that we can trust that's going to deliver a great story. Well, Diversify uh, basically is born of that idea that there should be no excuses. And Diversify not only has a POC directory, but also has a black photographer's database in particular. Um, and there's all kinds of work. It's not just photojournalism or editorial. There's commercial photographers, um, some of whom whose work just is, just kind of blows you away. <laughs> um, yeah, it's great. Absolutely. And, and um organizations that have been doing a lot of important, important work, changing the industry, um, or working, you know, working to. And so I like to, you know, bring those to people's attention who might not know about them, um, in, in, you know, in this podcast. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about you and your history and story. And cause I'm fascinated <laughs> by, um, even like your pre photography career, uh, and still part of what you do, um, of, of building traditional kayaks and then also the, um, the primitive skills, um, and, and how that kind of has the, yeah. I mean, it just, and it's unusual for most of us as to, um, as to how you, you know, got into doing all of this. Yeah, you, know, you know, in my brain, it all kind of links up together. Yes. It just flows together very well. But yes, it, it does seem really strange. I think <laughs> if you're, I guess, if you're not me, <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, I think the the link to indigeneity is really important here. Like, um, you know, I built I build traditional kayaks, but which we call um, Nanai, we call them Zai or uh, Oromchka, uh, and they are. Um, what can I say? Gosh, they're they're just amazing watercraft, right? They're they're often single person watercraft, um, and they're ultra light. They're the the kinds of boats that we built are basically frames with skin um, sewn over the top. And today we mostly use ballistic nylon, um, and they they end up those boats end up being stronger than fiberglass and um, and about a third of the weight, which is really incredible. But they, at the current moment in time, machines can't make them. They have to be hand-built. And um, I have to say they have way more soul because we know where the trees come from. You know, we smelled the, uh, smelled the wood um, and the sinew and have sewn it, put our love into it. So that when we build a boat this way, we, uh, you know, I really think of it as being alive. Um, it really comes to life. It's a very, very different kind of thing. Um, and so for, you know, for me, uh, kayaks in the water, it's all about bringing me closer. You know, like when I go kayaking, uh, I can go out for a week. I can go out for two weeks. I can go out for months at a time and put everything I need, like, and go camp. You know, I can go um, paddle around Vancouver Island um, and have all my camping gear, everything I need in it, and then um, just spend all this time either by myself or with friends. And that kind of immersion um, of being on the water side is it's a really incredible way to experience the wilderness because, uh, you know, the water is often, you know, you, you can't build man-made structures in the water very easily. It's tough. So as a result, the water is uh, it's a special kind of wilderness. It's quiet. It tends not to um, it tends not to have all of the visual clutter and all of the garbage <laughs> that um, human beings have done to a lot of the land, you know. Um, and so we can go to these places, especially that are somewhat wild places, and paddle around and camp in them. And then we wake up in the morning and look outside the tent door. Wolves will be darting past, you know, um, or might walk to fill up your water with fresh water in the morning and and trudge past the tracks of otters and bears and mink um, and deer. You know, all in the same morning passing each other. So you kind of, you know, all of that time spending these incredible places that often only kayaks can access. It's just an incredible world. You get to get an idea of what the land um, sounds like, what it sounds like when it's speaking to you, what it's like, what it's like when the animals themselves are still are talking to each other, you know, and they're not lost in the background din of human of, uh, of the, I guess, modernity <laughs> uh, of, uh, you know, kind of the 
yeah, there's just the cacophony of all the things that are going on. And I don't mean just by sound, but I mean, you know, all of the things, the infrastructure, the concrete instead of the instead of the grass, uh, all of that stuff. And so that also, I think, really relates to the primitive skills, too. Um, like, uh, I've long been interested in all of this stuff. And, you know, primitive skills, for people that know what that, know what that means, you know, a lot of people also refer to it as survival skills. It's not exactly the same. Um, survival has got more of this kind of military-esque vibe to it. And primitive skills is just really about this uh, notion of what was it like, what is it like for people to live close to the land in the Stone Age, you know, like without all of these high-tech tools that we need to have. And, you know, I mean, like now when I go someplace and camp, I got my inReach with me, my GPS with me. So I, it's not like I don't use technology. I love technology, but also doing primitive skills and going out on survival trips and this kind of stuff really it gives it clears your head it makes you realize what's really truly valuable and what's real um how to like for example um and you get just build up this whole level of skill and appreciation for the land that you don't get like if you're navigating by gps it's a bit like what happened with, I don't know if, you, if you're old enough to remember the time before Google Maps, which I hope some people are. <laughs> um, like we had to actually know what uh, city city layouts were like. You should remember what the names of the streets were and what, what kind of weird turns instead of just letting Google navigate um, at turn by turn. Um, and that's just the kind of same with the wilderness too. If you have a GPS, you know, there's that uh, sense that, gosh, you know, it doesn't really matter what's what the landscape is like. You can get from point A to point B with these with this machine um, and these dots. But without knowing that, instead, you learn all this plethora of information about what's going on in the world. Um, for example, the sun in the northern hemisphere, uh, the sun doesn't rise. Um, you know, it rises in the east and sets in the west. But what? Where is it at noon? Is it exactly? Um, is it exactly above us? Is neither north, south, east, and west, or is it actually in the north a little bit? You know, because if we know that in the middle of the day it, in the northern hemisphere, um, the sun is a certain location. It helps us to navigate. You know, the idea of moss on the trees uh, um, being uh, only being in the north in the northern hemisphere—that's not really true. It's much more complicated than that. But if you know how that works then you do start to actually get an idea of how to navigate around when you do see moss on a tree and it's only pointed in one direction. And it tells us a lot, a lot more because the intricacies are super interesting, right? Like we start to find out more about moss and you're like, oh, actually, it's not just that the sun is beating down on one side of this tree, drying up the moss on the one side. It's actually that that's not true. What happened here is that there was another tree that lived here and it died. Um, and now the moss, which was once shielded from the sun, is no longer. So, you know, you kind of see it like you get to see a sense of history of the land and what's happened here. Um, and there's all these little stories that are happening all around embedded in there if, we're just, if we can just learn how to listen to it. You know, and that's a lot of what primitive skills is. It just I, your uh, your images give us so much to visually see, but your words also can uh, take us there as well. And it's just a beautiful uh, way to think about reminder to think about living and the connection to to the land, uh, and and how, like you said, like we don't even wouldn't be able to find our way around without GPSs now, <laughs> right? People, right, which is just. Um, it creates this sort of distance and and lack of understanding again of what the 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 land is is provide not is providing to us and us providing to it you know in this in in the way that everything works. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your personal relationship to um, getting into sort of the spirituality of relationship to the land and then how that. Um, informs some of the, the, the work that you do as well. And I was seeing, I was looking at um, some of your, in this past year in the pandemic, uh, some that you were involved in some exhibits and such where kind of uh, some non-journalistic type of work um, that um, getting into that landscape. But, and anyway, talk to us about that aspect of, of what you do. Yeah, I, I thought this really interesting. Um, also, yeah, I've been kind of trying to um, do more projects that are a bit more fine art in nature, or just make maybe 
it's not like I'm trying to do fine art. It's more like I'm just letting myself go and following what I'm really interested in. Um, you know, I think there's a, that, and you're probably referring to the particular work that I've been doing, which is called Thin Places, um, which is part of an exhibition um, with a California Museum of Photography. Uh, in that series, uh, it's a, a bunch of photographs that are looking at um, these places where you might say the veil between the human world and the spirit world is thin, you know, and um, that's not uh, just an indigenous concept. I think that's a, a concept that pretty much every society has had at some point. And, and it makes sense because on a personal level, we all feel this thing, right? Um, even in the most rational among us, I think would you walk to a certain place sometimes and the light just hits you just so, and there's this like feeling of, Oh my God, I'm in this, what a cathedral of trees or something like that. And among the redwoods. And I'm like, Oh wow, this place, you feel small, you know, you feel, um, you feel small, but you feel grand. You feel part of everything. You know, you're reminded that life is around you. It's beautiful. And those places, they're not just any places. They're places that are very particular to us. You know, they're very personal. We feel them. Um, and taking that a step further too, like I'm also interested in all this because my background cultures, um, Nanai and Chinese also are animist. So we're, we're animistic, which means that we see the land or have seen the land in the past, uh, as, um, a place where there's a bunch of different spirits, uh, that, that are existed at any given time. And it's, you know, it's complicated how that particular thing looks a great representation. If you ever watched avatar, <laughs> the last airbender, um, there's really great representation for what it's like to be an animist and see the world from that point of view, especially in legend of Korra. Um, but the, uh, you know, animism is a bit like, um, uh, a great way to describe it for Western Europeans is uh, fairies. You know, like where did the fairy idea come from? But you know, if you walk into the woods um, at um, in the southeast at night and there's fireflies gl gl glowing around you, you can't help but feel that. But there's other times too. You know, it's not just like so. Fireflies are actually living creatures. You know, they have DNA, and so yes, we of course think of them as being alive. But what about those times? when you're sitting in a meadow somewhere and um, a bunch of tiny dandelion fluff blows by um, and there's light sparkling off the water and all of these different things are floating in the air around us and we just feel that this place is totally alive you know we don't need to know why you know we don't need to explain it necessarily i think it's okay to hold this contradiction of the idea of science um that you know with us as well as acknowledging that there's a spiritual element to life um, and that that place itself is special and that moment is special. And so I've been trying to photograph those places which are really meaningful to me um, in terms of like places where I feel the, and I, I, that I think also will translate this notion of um, being animist. Uh, and and I, what I love is this, uh, it, yes, everything is um, what we might think of as inanimate objects is still energy. It's everything is energy and, and vibration. And so um, it's, it, you know, bringing that to light in, um, in landscape work in a, in a different way or being able to present that um, is a really beautiful um, thing. So I, I, I love seeing that work as well. Um, yeah, it's hard. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a funny trick to it, which is hard because there's this kind of um, sort of self-deceit that you need to have in a certain way because you know as a photographer that you have to capture what's, you can only capture what your camera can see, not what you see and what you feel. So you um, have to find a place, these places where something um, in the visual world uh, that you can see and record is expressing something that you feel that's normally hidden. Um, and so that's the real challenge of it in a, in a lot of ways. Like uh, me walking around and finding my thin places, that's easy just because, you know, I don't have to do anything. I just have to go <laughs> and feel them. But to actually express it in visual form is the challenging part. And sometimes I think about it, but a lot of times I just stumble on them, you know, walk around in the in the Olympic rainforest and the light spot comes out of nowhere and cleaves this tree in half, you know, perfectly in half. And I'm like, wow. What? I've never seen that before. How is that even happening? You know, I'm sure I could figure it out. 
I'm sure I could figure it out, you know, but, but is that important? No. (laughs) And Um, usually not to the feeling part as well, because I mean, that's the difference there's in, in not just in landscape images, but going back to um, even, you know, the, the type of documentary work that you do, it's the, it's the feeling part. Images can be perfectly exposed or technically perfect, but it's, it is, in, in my belief, it's this, it's a relationship and the energy between you and what you are creating, um, with yeah, that this relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah. And yeah. you're brilliant at relationships yeah. and therefore <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to make sure that everybody knows where to find you, follow you, um, continue to see the, the incredible stories that you are creating, um, and the work that you're doing. So where can people find you? I'm definitely on Instagram, which I think is how most people <laughs> find me nowadays. And um, I just posted some pictures of muskox that uh, flying back from Alaska that I got um, frostbite for. So definitely worth checking out those pictures. They're pretty, um, they're very different than in muskox photographs that I've ever seen before. So I'm very happy to share those. Um, and that is at, at keelyuyun.com, um, which is hard to spell, <laughs> but it's K-I-L-I-I-I-Y-U-Y-A-N. And I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. Um, and then also you can uh, find all of my past stories, which I tend to write up as photo essays, including captioning information. And they're fun to browse through at Keeley.com. Um, so all kinds of different stuff there spanning my entire career. Awesome. And more more to come um, for sure. Keely, thank you so much. And um, it's just been a pleasure to have you here on Creative Live. Thank you. Aravanyalan. Thanks so much, Kenna. Yeah, it's great. It's been fun chatting with you. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com slash creator pass. As a creator pass subscriber, you have access to over 1500 classes on demand. Whether it's photo and video, art and design, craft, entrepreneurship, personal finance, or even yoga, there is always something new to learn on Creative Live from the world's best educators. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review We Are Photographers wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, and a five-star review goes a long way. You can stay up to date with everything happening at Creative Live by following us on social media, at Creative Live Everywhere. And I'm at Kenna Klosterman on Instagram, and at Kenna K Photo on Twitter. If there's anyone you want us to feature on the podcast, just send me a message. Thank you again for being part of the Global Creative Live community, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.